0: On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, one supermarket expands its carbon neutral beef program.
2: We certify effectively the emissions and any carbon removals on every farm that's in the program and uh, right through the supply chain as well It's not just us and our word for it either. Our work is then third party verified.
1: And a short but sweet harvest for a special flower.
3: Yeah, so most varieties really flower across 10 to 14 days. So we extend our picking window out to about three weeks by a few different varieties. Sometimes we can get four weeks depending on how the season runs with earlier and later varieties. But yes, each bush is really not a large window.
1: Yes, blink and you will miss the peony harvest, that story later in the program. And you can now look for beef marked carbon neutral in a supermarket near you in Tasmania, that story coming up in just a moment. We'll also talk about sustainable fishing as well. G'day Tony with you on the first day of summer, yes it is, summer's here, let's hope it brings on some sun. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage of the program just to see what is happening with that weather. And it looks like avocados will remain cheap as an expected oversupply in the country is set to continue. That story coming up for you as well. And we'll take your thoughts, or if you just want to say good day and any topic at all via the text line 936, That number 936. Nine double two First up, Coles has expanded its carbon neutral beef range to include Tasmanian customers along with buyers in New South Wales and South Australia. A reporter David Claughton spoke to Coles and one of their suppliers, Daniel Mathey, a cattle producer from Holbrook in New South Wales. He asked him what he's changed on the farm to make his beef carbon neutral.
4: We've planted a lot of trees, uh, so these they have the dual advantage of Offsetting emissions as well as providing shade for the herd and preventing erosion. Uh, We've implemented best practice soil and pasture management to increase the amount of carbon we're storing in the soil. So soil testing paddocks, applying the appropriate uh, nutrients that are required for those paddocks. Uh, Pasture management is targeted rotational grazing, uh, leaving the correct residual ground cover, uh, putting more area into perennial pastures. So there's more green feed, more time of the year. Going at, going, an extra effort to get the best cattle genetics available to increase herd productivity. Uh, we've installed multiple solar panels for farm electricity use, including pumping water to our cattle.
5: How many panels uh, have you got
4: now? We've got about 50 kilowatts of panels.
5: So how has Coles been helping you out in that regard? I mean, obviously, they're paying you for your beef. Do
4: they give you a premium or do they support you in other ways? That's right. Uh, Coles is, is paying a premium and they are um doing an excellent job of providing us with the resources uh to people to talk to to able to minimize our carbon emissions right and when you say you've
5: been doing rotational grazing so you are obviously resting quite a bit of land when you're doing that and you're you're putting nutrients on to promote the growth so the more that your pasture grows the more carbon
4: the grass can store in the soil yeah so that's right
5: so what are you seeing in terms of your carbon
4: levels uh they have been increasing steadily uh, over the years, but it is a very, it's a very—it's long-term gain game uh, with the soil carbon. Um, I think some more short-term things where we're seeing immediate results from uh, herd productivity. So we're putting a very strong emphasis on turning our cattle off at a younger age uh, and higher weights when possible. Um, so how does that help in
5: terms of your carbon footprint?
4: So the carbon footprint is measured on the basis of kilograms mm. of live weight sold. So if each, as a breeding producer, uh, we have to run a cow and if we that cow isn't getting in calf, it's gone. Um, and for every cow we run, their progeny, we want to put on the maximum amount of, of weight gain as fast as possible uh, to justify having that cow and to reduce that cow's emissions and the offspring's emission per kilogram of light weight gained.
5: So I suppose in some respects, the faster they grow, the quicker they get to an age that they can be they can they can be processed and that has less, less impact on the environment is that fair to say yes definitely and what about your carbon credits because that's a thing that you could sell have you
4: sold those to coles no we're still in the ind- the uh early stages of that process we're investigating all our options um so no not at this stage because a lot, of, uh, a lot coles- of farmers
5: are getting advice not to sell because obviously that might shut you out of other markets particularly in the eu
4: yeah, so we, we are treading carefully in that regard. We are uh, engaging with yeah, private consultants to make sure that we make the right decisions. Um, but Coles is definitely excited to be buying carbon credits from us directly, uh, but we just want to make sure that we're making the right decision.
5: Also at the launch today in Sydney's Dr. Stephen Wiedemann is the Managing Director of Integrity Ag and Environment. That's a big title. Uh, Stephen, can you explain what that means with Coles?
2: Uh, look, I oversee and manage this project and program for Coles and have been doing so since the beginning a couple of years ago. So it's been a long journey, but uh, we've, we've got there now and we're in the rollout phase, which is really exciting to see.
5: One of the key things around this is, is consumer confidence in that message that this is a more sustainable product. How does Coles measure that?
4: yeah
2: look as as science partner, that's part of our role. We do that certification work. we certify effectively the emissions and any carbon removals on every farm that's in the program and uh, right through the supply chain as well so through processing as well and then it's not just it's not just us and our word for it either. Our work is then third party verified. And finally, it's approved by Climate Active, who are the, the sort of certifying body and they're part of the federal government.
5: And what are you finding? When you, when you look across all of the producers, like Daniel Mathey in New South Wales and Holbrook, we did ask him how much carbon he's storing. We didn't get a number of that. What are you seeing across the board?
2: Yeah, look, the tricky thing is it takes a long time to certify a farm to be carbon neutral. Uh, in a way that we can put it on a shelf, on a brand. Uh, so that's realistically a five-year journey. So we're confident, you know, we're, we're delivering that um, that carbon neutral beef um, and the, the farms are, you know, I, I know it like, probably sounds a little bit ambiguous, but part of our challenge is uh, take an issue like soil carbon, you're, you're three to five years to certify how much soil carbon you're building. so. It, it's in process. It's, it, it takes takes time to get that certification bit done.
5: I suppose the other question really is about carbon credits. Like Coles has has a desire to be carbon neutral too in the future, but but Daniel's saying, oh, I want to weigh up my options in terms of selling you carbon credits. Uh, yeah,
2: look, carbon credits are a part of the picture. They're they're a useful sort of tool uh, and. Uh, for my part, I think it is best that the credits off a farm go with the product off that farm and, uh, uh, you know, really transfer them through the market that way.
5: Meaning that they would go to Coles?
2: Oh, look, in this instance, uh, look, I think Coles is, is is taking a leading role in this area, but I'm sure it won't be the last. In Industry and MLA here have the target of, 50% of beef going through low carbon and carbon neutral supply chains um, in, in the next decade. So this is really the, you know, the leading edge of it um, and we'll see a lot more of it to come.
1: That's Dr. Stephen Wiedemann from Coles speaking with David Claughton about their carbon neutral beef range and you also heard from beef farmer Daniel Mathey. Well, from sustainable beef to sustainable fisheries, 35% of the world's oceans are deemed overfished. Seaboss is a global initiative partnering with fisheries, including 10 of the world's largest commercial seafood companies, to encourage more sustainable practices. It's headed by Tasmanian man Martin Excel, who was at last week's Ocean Summit hosted in Triabunna on the east coast. He told Madeleine Rojan, when it comes to solving global problems about the oceans, it all starts with conversations.
6: Uh, In Tasmania specifically, I think uh, just by virtue of watching the dialogue and listening to what people are saying, we've come a million miles from where we were. People are, uh, well, we heard they're already angry, anxious, um, grieving. People are aware, though, of how important the oceans are, of how important uh, looking after our stocks are, and of how important it is to make change. So, um, yeah there are some challenges there's a lot of challenges there always are but I think we've come a very very long way.
7: How long has progress taken would you say how how fast is the progress being made?
6: For me uh, the progress that I'm looking at here with uh, sustainable uh, seafood production and sustainable management of our ocean is realistically only in the last two decades and that awareness raising um, that concern uh, for the ocean and what's happening and that true recognition of the role the ocean plays in um, uh, not just our global climate but in our community and um, in the just health and well-being of everyone on the planet.
7: Yeah, and on that progress, what what are some of the key points and the key driving factors for positive change?
6: Um, I think the the key driver for um, uh, change is... is genuinely an awareness of everyone of uh, our environment, our planet is in trouble, uh, number one. So we have the climate impacts, people we've heard there today about um, Red Map and and species moving southwards. Um, There's the awareness of uh, the cultural challenges that we have yet to deal with properly and the need to not only deal with them but also link them into our community practice and the way we manage our fisheries. And then thirdly, there's actually the the balance of, well, how much do we want to make available for commercial extraction? How much do we want to make available for the future? And how do we ensure we're looking after the whole ecosystem while we're doing it?
7: From listening to you speak today, it sounds like a lot of these, you believe a lot of these global issues are solved through the management of individual human relationships. That sounds like a tough feat. Can you explain more about that?
6: I think at the end of the day, it's all about people. When people start to care, when people start to understand and when we're transparent and open about what we're doing so that other people can see, then people can work together to achieve great results. And uh, I think for too long we've um, sort of moved uh, people away from the centre of the discussions and, and start looking more at um, how socially can we improve, um, how can we actually improve the lot for everybody.
7: You're from a global organisation, seaboss How do international fisheries compare with Tasmanian fisheries?
6: A, a number are, are a lot worse. Uh, so I, I think, to be fair, around the globe, um, there are some major challenges. The, the 35% of stocks we know are overfished already um, and that's a major problem. Within the CBOS group um, uh, there are less problematic uh, fisheries that the companies operate within but at the same time there are undeniably similar problems to what is happening in Tasmania and there are similar um, positives in terms of what's happening in Tasmania as well. So there are a lot of success stories in Tasmania that Um, we we often get like a a sort of a culture cringe about in Tasmania. Um, We should be hailing the fact that we have some of the world-leading most sustainable fisheries. Um, We need to do that while recognising the fact we've we've still got a long way to go with others. But um, don't be, uh, you know, disappointed that everything's not perfect because that's not reality. I think there's great opportunity here for Tasmania, um, for the people for the state um, for the environment and finding that sort of deep breath pause how can we actually have a conversation without making the other person wrong is such a critical uh, component and that's a difficult one to overcome but it goes back to people
7: how how does CBOS actually work
6: um so cboss is a it's a unique collaboration between um science from stockholm Uh, in Sweden, Lancaster in the UK, Stanford in the US and Tokyo University in Japan and then ten of the largest seafood businesses in the world and it's the CEOs uh, that sign up on behalf of those companies to a set of commitments to work with science um, to achieve a a global transformation on sustainable seafood production and a healthy ocean. Uh, the, the scale of Cbos is um, designed from a science perspective to be those companies that are big enough to have a, a major impact and others will then follow if they do the right thing. So there are uh, several companies that, that we're looking at at the moment to sign up and there are other science institutions that we're looking at um, incorporating. But at the moment, um, it's the group of 10, uh, the largest, probably 20% of the global production and um, science from four different nations.
7: Yeah and so it relies a lot on people voluntarily signing up?
6: Uh, Yeah absolutely it's a voluntary um, initiative and uh, that's that's one of the keys is that driver to ensure that the people that are part of the group have shared values and have shared um, commitment towards achieving these goals.
7: And what do you hope will come from the summit today?
6: Shared understanding. I think uh, just listening to others' point of views and having a different perspective on why they might be angry or why they might be happy or uh, what it is that we need to do together. So improved understanding. Can't ask for better than that.
1: That's Martin Excel, the head of Global Sustainability Initiative, Boss with Madeline Rojan at the Tasmanian Ocean Summit talking about sustainable fishing on the country. We've been talking about sustainable beef and then, as you just heard, sustainable fishing. What about sustainable energy prices? Joining the country I now as the CEO of the Royal Agricultural Society of Tasmania, Scott Gad. Thanks for your time, Scott.
8: Thank you, Tony.
1: Are the prices you're facing when your contract ends sustainable?
8: Uh, well, no, not without some additional investment in renewable energy. We're looking at a you know, 100% increase, basically in our next power contract. So uh, that's a bit of a shock.
1: So a total doubling of your power prices if you sign a new contract...
8: Yeah, that's correct, mate. On the consumption side, the network charges are fixed and they'll probably go up as well. But yeah, in terms of what we actually use, if I'd signed for one year, I was facing a 105% increase. I've signed for two years and that's a 91% increase.
1: Okay. So who is involved in the competition on a scale that uh, you use?
8: Uh, there are two providers in Tasmania that can supply commercial customers, and that is Aurora Energy and Shell Energy.
1: Okay, who have you been with um, currently?
8: Uh, we were with Shell. Uh, we'll be going to Aurora.
1: Okay, um, no other options. And why? Do, have they explained why the uh, price increase is there?
8: It's the national electricity market. It's what the price is at the moment. Like, they they put an offer on the table. It only stays on the table for 48 hours because of the volatility of the market. So you've got to grab what you can when you can. You can take the risk and hold out. Um, But the advice I received, and I use a broker to do all this work for me in the analysis, the advice we've received is we better jump now because the future is probably quite unstable and quite volatile.
1: Now, Scott, as the CEO of the Royal Agricultural Society, you obviously talk to a lot of farmers. Have you heard um, some stories of what is happening on the farm with power prices, energy energy prices, contracts?
8: No, I haven't. But the last time this happened, we had about a 30% increase. And I think I'm at the beginning of the billing cycle or the renewal cycle, because it was like I was the canary in the coal mine last time. And I suspect that's the same again this time.
1: Okay. And we know the showground... At Hobart is being redeveloped. What's the situation with providing energy sources there, uh, involving uh, in the in the rebuild?
8: We we were looking at putting a um, a big solar array on the new pavilion. Uh, we're committed to that now. <laughs> once we've seen the, the quote, um, and we were we've been investigating other renewable energy technology. We're now accelerating those investigations. We're now actually moving to seek approval from TAS Networks to install an 11-megawatt battery system on the site. So that means we can power that up with our solar energy and any excess energy we can then sell back into the grid uh, to whoever wants it. And that should give us control over our power prices for about a day.
1: In dollar terms, what's your power bill going from to...
8: So the hit is about a $60,000 a year hit. Um, so when you're factoring the network charges, I'm probably going to go from about 130000 a year up to close to 200000 a year.
1: And you can't really sustain increases like that, can you?
8: Well, no, some of it has to be passed on, obviously, to the motorhome park and uh, other tenants. It will have to be passed on. Um, but, you know, we... You know, the 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 battery system we're looking at is somewhere between 12 and 20 million dollar investment. The only way we can make that work is if we can trade that energy, that, that excess energy, and that certainly the business case have developed looks promising. But that would be beyond the reach of most small business, and I do fear for small businesses as they reach the end of their power contracts coming up. Uh, how are they going to cope with that? It's obviously prices that will have to be passed on.
1: And obviously, too, you deal with a lot of smaller agricultural societies around Tasmania. They're probably facing similar sort of uh, contract prices in the future?
8: I would think so. Uh, Most of them are a fair bit smaller than us. Some of them are on council-owned land, so it's less of an issue. Um, But for some, yeah, it's a big hit. You know, you're, you're only making enough each year to sustain yourself for next year, and then you've got to find a big chunk of money. And, that you know, that's the case with power and water and other costs going up every time we sort of make some gains. They just get sucked out the back door with uh, increasing costs. Do
1: you think it's ironic that uh, Tasmania has hydropower and you're facing these sort of prices?
8: Well, it is, but it's a product... I think it's a policy failing of the previous federal government, to be frank. Um, they had plenty of time. I mean, my hit 30% a couple of years ago, the warning bells were there and uh, nothing was done and now we're bearing the consequences of sort of that inaction from the previous federal government, quite frankly.
1: Okay, Scott, thanks for your time. Thanks Tony. That's the CEO of the Royal Agricultural Society of Tasmania. Scott Gadd talking about the society being offered a 12-month contract, which is 105% more on the current cost of power. Lots of dollars there, as you heard Scott talking about, and, uh, of course, the showground redevelopment. Now they're looking at different types of energy sources. Well, as many farmers across the East Coast are faced with weather-beaten crops this harvest, there are growing calls for Australia to embrace Scandinavian technology that would repurpose millions of dollars' worth of wasted crops to create energy. Jane McNaughton has the story.
9: In European countries such as Denmark, damaged crops and straw left over from grain or oilseed harvest are purchased from farmers by energy companies and burnt to create heat and power. This kind of natural waste is known as biomass, and processing this into power is called creating bioenergy. This gives producers a safety net, according to Victorian farmer Andrew Lang, who is also part of the World Bioenergy Association.
10: There is this big sort of technology or development of of industry that is able to utilise all this stuff. And so if there is storm-damaged or hail-damaged or flooded crops like we've got here this year, uh, then that would just be able to go straight into that stream.
9: Do farmers get paid for that?
10: Yeah, there's a price at the receivable gate of the plant and uh, it's usually somehow linked to the price of oil on the world market so that the farmers are actually getting some revenue stream out of their straw on top of what they've got for the grain. And so it's more than enough to make it worthwhile.
9: Plans are underway near Ararat in Western Victoria to build the largest biogas plant in the Southern Hemisphere. The Ararat Bioenergy Facility would buy straw and stubble from farmers within 150 kilometres of the planned site, according to Chief Executive of Pacific Heat and Power, Dr Scott Garrison.
11: There's been a destruction of the actual um, grain head in, in many instances or, or, or you know, otherwise profitable elements to those crops there is still standing biomass sitting there on the ground, as it were, that has been not otherwise disposed of up until this point. So there's a huge volume, a gold mine of biological resource that is actually sitting there that could be converted into a range of downstream value-added products. So instead of uh, perhaps torching this material and sending it back up into the atmosphere or or even overtilling excess products back into the soil where a large proportion of that ends up being broken down by microbes in the soil and and ends up released as CO2 to the atmosphere anyway, we can make use of the energy value and potential of that material and displace natural gas or fossil gas.
9: Dr Garrison says the project is currently undergoing feasibility studies which are expected to be complete by September 2023, at which stage government approvals would be required to begin building the plant. Once complete, Ararat Bioenergy is projected to be worth $217 million, with approximately $2.5 million spent already in development.
11: We recently used some fairly innovative cutting-edge satellite mapping technology that told us that prior, actually, we we did this in in mid-September prior to the floods actually hitting, but essentially it told us that within about a 150 kilometer radius, of our project site. There was going to be this season approximately about eight million tonnes of residues, and that's across wheat, barley, canola, oats, post-grain harvest that that was was there, ready ready for the taking as it were. So what it does is it ultimately can provide that backstop of income and and supply for farmers and a diversity in their income streams so that when these sorts of tragedies strike, at the very least, at least, you know, there's something there for them that they can take away.
9: Denmark began embracing bioenergy in 1993 when legislation was passed that power companies were required to use 1 million tonnes of straw per year. And this increased in 2002 when many European Union countries banned the burning of stubble, according to Mr Lang.
10: Those sophisticated plants that are now increasingly automated, mostly operating in the regions, taking straw just from the region. There are more and more of them being built. I think the last one in Denmark was commissioned in about 2016. So the Danes are going really strongly, and uh, a lot of the other countries are following along using the Danish technology.
9: But Mr Lang says in Australia, both state and federal governments lack awareness at a policy development level about bioenergy.
10: We need to have it regarded as an eligible technology in the first place. The power coming from these plants is available on demand, so you can have it available 95% of the hours of the year. We need a first cab off the rank, basically, to show, to show what's possible. It, yeah, it really is a matter of someone biting the bullet. And and, and the first one probably needs to be supported by state and federal government.
1: That's Victorian cropping and sheep farmer, a member of the World Bioenergy Association, Andrew Lang, ending that report by Jane McNaughton. In Denmark, around 12% of the country's power supply comes from straw-fired power plants, along with other technologies such as biodigesters that run off livestock manure and create fertiliser as a by-product. And you can read more about this story if you head to ABC Rural. Online. Still to come, we'll take you to a peony harvest in the northwest of the state and also talk about the oversupply of avocados and a check on the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward.
12: Thanks, Tony. Australia has improved its emissions projections since the change of government but is still short of Labor's 43% target. The Albanese government says despite being behind on its promised target of a 43% emissions reduction by 2030, Australia is on track to achieve a 40% reduction. Sustainable Timber Tasmania suspended logging in a forestry coop where a former Australian Greens leader Bob Brown was arrested recently. Mr Brown and other protesters said there was evidence of swift parrot breeding in the coop in the eastern tiers. Sustainable Timber Tasmania told a parliamentary hearing surveys had now detected the parrots breeding and foraging there. Legal firm Morris Blackburn made a formal complaint to Australia's Information Commissioner over Medibank's data breach. The Commissioner has the power to order compensation be paid to affected customers if it determines the health insurer failed to take appropriate steps to protect their data. The opposition's ramped up its attack on Racing Minister Madeline Ogilvy. Taz Racing confirmed it terminated the contract of its former chief executive Paul Erickson following a scathing workplace culture review, seemingly at odds with Ms. Ogilvy's statement in July that he'd left to return to Sydney to spend more time with his family. And the Rolling Stones are now the face of a new collectible coin issued by Britain's Royal Mint to celebrate the band's sixtieth anniversary. For Bulletin at one.
1: Yes, the Rolling Stones gathering no moss, just getting older. Uh, time now to check the latest on the weather with Brooke Oakley from the Bureau. G'day, Brooke.
13: Good afternoon, Tony. I
1: suppose we're all getting older. <laughs> 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 we're heading that way. Uh, rainfall, has there been any of note?
13: No, there hasn't been much rainfall. In the 24 hours to 9am this morning, there has been a little bit of rain about the west of the state, with the highest totals being 7mm at Lake Margaret, followed by 6mm at Mount Reid. Since 9am this morning, there's been no significant rainfall and that's because a ridge of high pressure is producing settled weather for Tasmania to mark the beginning of summer. However, we do have a lingering trough in the northeast that is bringing some showers today and those showers are expected to extend to the central north during the evening. And then tomorrow we start to see a north-to-northeasterly airstream developing, and it will be fine apart from some light showers about the north. Most of those showers, if they occur, will be about higher ground, particularly the western tiers. And then Saturday is looking like it will be fine and mostly sunny. And we start to see temperatures gradually warming up later in the week as well, particularly about the north. And Launceston is expecting a maximum of 26 degrees on Saturday and then 27 degrees on Sunday. Sunday marks a transition from settled to unsettled weather as a trough extends from the northwest. So we see showers developing about the south during the afternoon and evening and fine elsewhere apart from possible late showers about the northwest. And then we see showers and possible thunderstorms to start the week on Monday and east to south easterly winds freshening during the afternoon and evening as a low pressure system moves over or near Tasmania.
1: Okay, is that low pressure system going to move very slowly?
13: Not not that slowly. It's going to move over the state on Monday and then to the east on Tuesday. So Monday and Tuesday will be... a a period of showery and unsettled weather, and then a cold front will cross on Wednesday, heralding a return to cooler and more typical conditions.
1: Good. But is there much rain on Monday, Tuesday in that uh, that trough?
13: There is some very warm, moist air that's moving across with the trough, so there is the potential for some heavy showers. But at this stage, no widespread large rainfall totals. So we are watching... uh, the state in terms of flooding and at this stage the worst case scenario would be some isolated minor flooding. So mm. it's not looking like a significant event at this stage.
1: Okay, for day one of summer, and it is December one. Do we have any warnings?
13: No, there are no warnings for today or tomorrow. <laughs> and out on the coastal waters today the winds are southwest to southeasterly at ten to twenty knots, tending southeast to northeasterly about the northeast in the evening. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of four to five metres and the wave rider boy at Cape Sorrel is currently just over with 5.1 metres. In the north are westerly around one metre offshore and in the east are south to southwesterly one to two metres, tending southwesterly three to four metres offshore in the south. Tomorrow the winds are east to northeasterly at 10 to 15 knots about Bass Strait Variable winds below 10 knots elsewhere, tending northeast to northwesterly 10 to 20 knots during the afternoon. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 3 to 3.5 metres, decaying to 2 to 3 metres during the afternoon. In the north are westerly below 1 metre offshore. And in the east a south to southwesterly 1 to 2 metres, tending southwesterly 2.5 to 3.5 metres offshore in the south.
1: An acceptable start to uh, a new season, Brooke. Thank you for that.
13: I know it it is going to start feeling more summery as we head into the weekend, but at least there is an end to all of the uh, rain we've had recently.
1: Yeah, terrific. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Tony. It's Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest information for you and a pinch and a punch, start of the month. Hope you're enjoying your first day of summer, not too much rain around at the moment. A little bit coming, though, as you heard Brooks say. But uh, hopefully uh, a lot more sun as well, which is much needed in many areas of the state. Well, coming up, uh, good news for consumers. Looks like an avocado oversupply to continue and prices down, but uh, not so good for growers. That story in a moment.
6: The ABC Giving Tree for 2022 is up in all its majesty, a sign of hope for families doing it tough during the holiday season. Donate online now at abc.net.au slash givingtree and closer to Christmas, we'll distribute your generosity of spirit to our partner charities. This helps those in need make their own choice on how they share with their loved ones. G'day, it's Joel Reinberger here from weekends on ABC Radio Hobart. Please donate now, abc.net.au slash givingtree. It's
0: the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: So the avocado industry now, and after mass dumping of fruits earlier this year, avocado growers are bracing for another year of oversupply off the back of increased production and another big flowering season. Avocados Australia chief executive John Tyus tells Jennifer Nichols there are four million trees in the ground, compared to one and a half million ten years ago.
14: It has been a very tough year, uh, and it's been coming for a while because we've been monitoring the tree plantings over the last few years and uh you know we know that nearly half of all the trees planted in Australia are yet to come into full production so this isn't a one off uh what we've just seen it's going to continue over the next few years as we continue to increase our production up to about 170,000 tons up from uh, about 80,000 tons in 2021 so we're going through a massive growth phase and, and um obviously the industry is going through some fairly serious growing pains so yeah, very tough year last year, but uh, we're doing everything we can to build demand in the domestic market, but, but also developing new export markets, uh, because you know, simply the, the domestic market is going to struggle to consume all the volume that's coming in the next few years.
15: Realistically, how competitive are we going to be, though, given the distances involved in export and the fact that so many other countries produce lots of avocados?
14: Most of our competitors uh, are in in South America. So we are closer to our export markets, which are predominantly Asia. That's uh, Southeast Asia is where most of uh, our avocados go. And that's where our focus is. Um, we're also looking at uh, expanding our footprint into Japan, and and uh, hoping to get access to to India before too long, which is uh, which is an emerging market, and uh, and you know one day we hope to get access to to China. So we're in a we're in a good position geographically for those growing markets.
15: How many tons of avocados were produced in Australia last year, and how does that compare to the previous year?
14: Uh, it's about 122,000 tonnes was produced in 2022, and it was just under 80,000 tonnes in in 2021. So about a you know about a 50, 50 odd percent increase uh, in 12 months. So that's that's why it's been such a struggle to suddenly move such a large increase in volume into fairly limited markets. You know we've really only got uh, probably three three major export markets and the domestic market. So Fairly limited. Our biggest issue at the moment is getting getting access to to new markets, and and what I mean by that is technical market access. So so a lot of the countries we want access to have got quarantine protocols that need to be negotiated by 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 the relative governments to uh, to put processes in place to manage um, pests of concern. So that's quite a, a lengthy process, and and that's an area that we're really focusing on at the moment uh, to try and get access to to larger markets.
15: Wow, the pressure's on you, isn't it, John Tyus? Because production is expected to continue to increase to about hundred and seventy thousand tons by twenty twenty
14: six. Yeah, exactly. The pressure is definitely on the industry. <clears throat> but like I say, I think there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. The key is being globally competitive. So, you know, growers need to do everything they can to get optimum yields because that drives profitability and quality. quality. is actually key. We we uh we just got back from a, a trip where we took a number of growers and exporters, a group of about 20, to um, Asia Fruit Logistica in Bangkok and then on to Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. The message that we got was really clear. We have to be the best. You know, we have to be, produce the best quality product. We need to have the best service And with those things, I think, you know, if we're a reliable supplier of a really good quality product, um, Australia is seen as a producer of of good quality produce. There are definitely good markets there. Uh, We've just got to really work for it.
15: How low did the price per avocado go compared to the maximum price they've received in recent years?
14: We go through a process of um, working out an average wholesale price each year. Last year, it was around... $17 Seventeen dollars a tray, which is really, really low. That's really below the cost of, of production. But previously, it's been up to around you know thirty eight, forty dollars a tray. So it's been a it's a, been a big change. And, and you know, long term, it'll it'll prove to be a good thing for the industry because it'll grow consumption. But you know, the Australian growers can't supply at that price. It's just it's just unsustainable uh, long term.
15: Over the years, we've seen planting was boom. For example, macadamias is a classic example of peaks and troughs. Are you concerned that there could be really tough times ahead for the avocado industry if you can't get these markets open fast enough?
14: Yes. Well, you know, we've just been through a really tough year. That is going to continue for the next few years. There'll be some ups and downs along the way. Some growers may decide to to leave the industry if they don't think that they can be globally competitive. But Definitely the majority of the industry is still very committed and still very confident in a really great future for the Australian avocado industry. But just a couple of few, – few tough years ahead. And as I said, the key for our industry, the absolute key, is market access to new markets.
1: Yeah, that's Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyers speaking to Jennifer Nichols about another year of oversupply of avocados. Good for consumers, maybe not so good for the growers Coming up, uh, around about 2,000 sheep meat and wool producers were surveyed. We'll have the results of that survey for you, what they're thinking in just a moment. Take a late lunch in the afternoon zone.
12: Doesn't that sound fun? With
1: Jane Longhurst.
12: Tomasz Oswald.
11: We are so lucky here in Tasmania because we have amazing spoken word artists and I came from Hungary and then when I arrived here, we moved to a tiny little uh, place, uh, Lorina up on the north and the community knew that I'm telling stories and so said, OK, sit down. And then there was a fire, as you said, there were the people and I told the story.
6: Your afternoon. It's very alive. Weekdays from one thirty on ABC Radio Hobart.
0: Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Take you to a flower farm where peonies are the flavour of the month very shortly. Positive pastures, good grain and favourable markets are enticing sheep producers to increase their flock sizes in the next 12 months. That's according to a recent Meat and Livestock Australia and Australian Wool Innovation report where almost 2,000 sheep meat and wool producers were surveyed. Meat and Livestock Australia market analyst Jenny Lim says it's looking positive ahead for the two industries.
8: This
16: survey really looks at um, the producer sheep producer intentions for the next 12 months, and it shows that, you know, there's a positive outlook for the industry moving forward. Um, and producers are really looking to increase their flock sizes or maintain numbers and expand operations, so it's looking really positive for the industry.
17: And what were some of the questions producers were asked in the survey?
16: So a lot of the questions were based around how many lambs they had, breed breakdowns, what their sentiments around the industry is and what they're expecting to do in the next 12 months. We also had uh, questions around you know, current issues that they're feeling prevalent in the industry at the moment and also what kind of sales channels they're using so we can track that movement of
17: um, sheep and lamb sales. And sale yards continued to be the dominant sale channel. Uh, are we likely to see that trend continue?
16: Yeah, so it's really encouraging to see that sale yards continue to be the primary sales channel for sheep and lamb sales, and it highlights the importance um, of sale yards in the industry. Uh, One thing I do have to point out is that probably more transactions do occur through over the hooks or direct sales, and this is just because it's the primary method for the larger producers, over 20,000 sheep. Um, But more producers are using sale yards as a number, and um, it's really cool to see that people are still getting into the community and selling through the sale yards.
17: And the survey noted that almost 50% of producers are looking at increasing their flocks. What's caused that confidence in the market?
16: Yeah, so the outlook for, um, the forecast outlook for the the coming 12 months is looking really good for sheep producers and those sheep producing regions. Um, And that's creating confidence in the market and people are still looking to increase their flock sizes and expand um, their operations Um, and you know 47% of them are expecting good conditions in the next 12 months so that's really improving that sentiment in the market.
17: And when you're talking about those good conditions, what are they specifically?
16: Yeah, so we're seeing um, really good pasture growth conditions. So, you know, the expected third La Nina is going to really push out that um, feed availability. And there's also, you know, a really good grain crop coming through in the next, in this harvest. So it's really allowing producers to expand those operations with the feed on ground that's going to be available to them.
17: And I guess what comes with expanding operations is the need for more labour. Um, that was mentioned as a potential hurdle for the industry. What, what else was flagged um, by the survey participants as, as a difficulty at the moment?
16: Input costs were another issue that um, producers raised. They are expecting an increase in input costs such as Fertiliser, fuel, um, feed, those kind of things. Um, but actually, there's, there's no expectation of changes in land prices, which is quite positive to see, as we've seen quite high prices in the last 12 months. So that's um, something that's really positive to see for the producers. And like you said, 65% are expecting it to be more difficult to um, get skilled labour in. And you know, we'll hopefully see some immigration happening in the next 12 months that will alleviate that pressure in the
17: agriculture industry as a whole. There's been a rise in sheep meat. What does that look like?
16: Yeah, so we're seeing um, a great interest in the sheep meat um, breeds and that can be seen in the breed breakdown in the in the report. We can see that 35% of the flock are actually prime lambs um, and that's really positive in the sheep meat industry um, where majority of the national sheep flock is um, merino. Uh, so we are seeing a keen interest in other uh, less dominant breeds such as shedding, which is purely a a meat uh, breed and that's really um, great for the industry moving forward.
1: Meat and Livestock Australia market analyst Jenny Lim speaking there with Demetria Panagiotaris. Specifically 46% of sheep producers looking to increase their flocks in 2023. That suggests there'll be an additional 1.7 million lambs on the ground or a jump of 6% on Australia's 2022 flock size. Thank you. Peeney watching in just a moment. Uh, Peter in West Hobart tells us, uh, Tony, I wonder if you could let your listeners know the dense acrid smoke coming off Knock Lofty is from a reduction burn, a fuel reduction burn, uh, which was started this morning. It was sprung on us without warning this morning. Okay, Peter, thank you for that. So uh, that's where the smoke's coming from. It is a burn-off, a reduction burn around Knock Lofty, if you're wondering where all that uh, smoky stuff is coming from in the Hobart area. Well, do you ever think I'd uh, just love to take a break from something and do what I really enjoy? For one Latrobe farming family, the cut flower market was getting pretty stressful when they were scratching each year to ship pallets of their homegrown peoneers to the mainland. Stepping back and sticking to grassroots sales has meant they can return to just enjoying their flowers as well as welcoming people onto their paddocks. So, yeah, so this is
3: coming out into the main paddock um, so we've got nearly 8,000 plants out here. Uh, the oldest were planted 17 years ago. Do you ever get sick of this? It's
0: like it's like a field of joy here or something, just fluffy white heads everywhere <laughs> and pink.
3: Yeah, no, it's, it's lovely. I really look forward to November each year. Um, I just find it so amazing.
0: When the Craigie family planted 8,000 peony plants on their Latrobe farm nearly 20 years ago, the plan was to feed the commercial market. But after years in the cutthroat commercial flower game, they decided
3: it was time to reassess. My name's Andrea. I'm from Heathermore Peonies.
0: How long has this peony farm been around for?
3: Uh, So we planted our first plants 17 years ago and it took about three years to get the entire planting of 8,000 plants in. Um, We didn't get any... You don't normally get blooms off peonies in the first couple of years. So the first few years were really just about getting the bushes up and going. Uh, And so we've probably been picking flowers, I guess, for fourteen years we stepped away from the commercial sales we found them just a little bit too intensive and um, the market's getting probably a bit tight there whereas we quite enjoy this side of being able to go to the farmers' markets with our bunch of flowers or sell them from our gate and also welcome people into the paddock on our open days for pick your own sessions
0: Pen is it's so fast there's nothing and then suddenly there's some shoots and then suddenly there's a whole bush and suddenly flowers.
3: Yeah so they grow from kind of a rootstock tuber in the ground Um, so they're a perennial plant that die off each year and so this paddock would you believe was bare at the beginning of September so less than three months later we're standing here and we've got not only giant bushes with flowers on them but some of them are already finished Um, so it's really incredible to watch every year it still amazes me in the space of 10 to 12 weeks we go from Bare ground with tiny little shoots poking through all the way up into these amazing bushes with so many flowers on them.
0: The flowering window itself is quite short.
3: Yeah so most varieties really only flower across 10 to 14 days um, so we extend our picking window out to about three weeks by a few different varieties. Sometimes we can get four weeks depending on how the season runs um, with earlier and later varieties but yes each bush is really not a large window.
0: And how has the season been this year? It's been terrible weather for a lot of farmers.
3: Look like everyone else we've certainly noticed the effects the wetness the lack of sunshine so the low light levels certainly have caused us to have a later start Um, and it really just had a lot of the plants sitting there ready so that when the sunshine did come out they all started blooming and now we're over and done with quite quickly so it's been a very condensed window this year.
0: One of the ways that your family likes to sell your peonies is through open days. People have been coming to those, even though it's been pouring with rain.
3: Yes, and people have come in decent winds and it has been wet on days and we're still very grateful that people have come out and been able to share the flowers with us. Um, And we really like just getting to chat to people and walk amongst the flowers with them.
0: That's um, quite a testament to people's love of, of these flowers. Why do you think they are so popular?
3: I mean like they're a beautiful flower like they're just genuinely so lovely Uh, but I think the fact that it's such a short season and you can only get them locally for such a narrow period of the year adds to that specialness of them um, and people then for or start really associating special things with the flowers.
0: How many people does it take to run the operation out here?
3: Uh, So we're very much a family business um, and we being the short season that peonies are, we sort of slot them in around other things that are going on. Um, so my dad, he's busy farming a lot of the time, so he does a lot of the growing of our flowers, getting them up and going, making sure they're growing well, the watering and such. Uh, my brother and I then do a lot of the picking and bunching. Um, my brother heads off to the harvest market in Launceston every week, sells a bunches of flowers there, and I am more involved in our open days and making sure our bunches are all up and going. Now,
0: Andrea, you're a, you're a mother of two kids under three. You live and work over at the Tamar Valley and you're doing the peonies here. Are you exhausted at the moment?
3: Slightly. <laughs> but look, we're surrounded by beautiful flowers, so that really helps and makes it worthwhile.
1: Yeah, certainly keeps you going, doesn't it? A short, sharp season for the peonies. That's Andrea O'Halloran showing reporter Meg Powell around Heathermore, her family's peony farm at La Trobe. Uh, After one o'clock, by the way, we'll go back to the cricket, Uh, cricket starting uh, on time. Uh, The uh, play will start about 20 past one at 25 minutes from now. So uh, after the uh, Country Hour finishes, normal Country Hour today and tomorrow with the cricket on in Perth, Australia doing extremely well. Uh, Two weeks down for 293, so we'll take you to the cricket uh, after one o'clock. Well finally today when Albert Chan boarded a flight from Tonga to Australia in April 2021 he never imagined six months of seasonal work would turn into almost two years. But after pandemic border closures and losing contact with his family during a volcanic eruption this month he and thousands of other Tongan nationals will finally fly home. Eliza Burlage caught up with Mr Chan during his lunch break at the Costa Group Packhouse in the Riverland.
18: I started coming over here since 2017 yeah and we couldn't make it on 2020 because of the COVID yeah no flight and then we finally make it on like 2021 to come over and then we uh, we were expecting to just come over for like six months six to seven months then we go home but end of the season we didn't make it what happened we uh, couldn't get a flight back home because of the COVID back home our country the border was still locked so we couldn't make it home and then the company has to finance more work to do.
19: That would be quite hard to process not being able to go home when you expect. Do you remember how you felt when you found out that news?
18: Yeah, it was pretty sad. Yeah, And some of the boys were disappointed because they were expecting to see their families. Because normally it's just six months. And now it's been the longest time that we're away from home. Especially most of the boys, they didn't expect that.
19: The Federal government granted more than thirteen thousand visa extensions to help stranded seasonal workers continue working in key industries like agriculture. More than a quarter of those went to Tonga nationals like Mr. Chan, who says his employer Costa group found him additional work after the citrus season ended in the riverland.
18: We, we end up to Tasmania picking berries, yeah, our blueberries are uh, blackberries strawberries and, yeah, and raspberry, yeah for a couple of months and then we have to come back here for the start of the season this year.
19: But while there's been plenty of support, he says the distance from family has been tough, especially amid disaster and disease. There's
18: been a lot of challenges um, since we were here, especially when we, we went to Tasmania. That was the first time that we got the COVID. Yeah, and then when we were quarantined with the COVID... And then we, we heard the thing that happened back home, the volcano and the tsunami.
19: The magnitude 5.8 earthquake on January 15 destroyed Tonga's phone and internet connection to the outside world.
18: And it, it was that time, it was pretty uh, sad and it was pretty difficult. Boys were worried about their families. network, couldn't, um, couldn't get any network back home to contact their family to see how they, uh, check on them how they are. Yeah, it was pretty hard. Yeah, for me, it took like almost a month to contact my family.
19: It must have been such a relief when you heard from them and they were all all right?
18: Yeah, it was. Yeah, since I heard from them, yeah, they messaged me and oh, thank God they're <laughs> they still alive because <laughs> yeah, we were from the other islands. <laughs> yeah, I think they were lucky when the volcano and the tsunami hit Tonga because we were here. Once we get uh, connected with them, then we send them money. Yeah, even the company that we work for, Costa, they load up a container full of food to support the families back home. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we do appreciate their help. And yeah.
19: So you're flying back home in in less than a month. How do you feel about that?
18: Pretty exciting. Looking forward to uh, see the families for like over a year and a half now, almost two years. And the beaches, swimming because we live in an island. We always swim every day. Yeah. Have
19: you got, like, a first meal planned or somewhere you're going to stop and get food from or someone's house you're going to go to?
18: Normally when we uh, go back home, the families will prepare seafood. Yeah, normally they get, like, octopus, um, oyster, lobster. Yeah, they get, like, those kind of food, yeah. Fish, big one, raw fish.
19: So you've been to Australia a few times, but this time was uh, a lot longer than you expected. Do you think you'll come back?
18: Yes, I do. I do, um, I'm going to come back next season because um, normally this is where we, we get money to support our families back home. Back home it's hard to, um, to get money and a good job but we do get good money here when we work in Australia and yeah, just support my mum, she lives in a different island and my grandparents, they, they live in a different island and when we uh, game over, most of the boys have their own goals and they what they're going to work for and use their money for I've been like, bought a new car, a piece of land with the money that I got from working here in Australia, which is good, and support the family as well.
1: Yeah, good luck to Albert Chan, a Tongan seasonal worker going home shortly after about two years, not seeing the family. Speaking there with Eliza Berlage, ending the country out for today. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and our ABC Rural Facebook page. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.